Gentlemen, we do not stop till nightfall. What about breakfast? We've already had it. We've had one, yes. What about second breakfast? Don't think he knows about second breakfast, Pip. What about elevensies? Luncheon, afternoon tea, dinner, supper. He knows about them, doesn't he? again uh welcome back to second breakfast it's pretty horrible weather outside uh, i think there's a storm very much brewing so i'm inside i've got a nice hot drink and a big pile of books and really looking forward to discussing um episode three from hobbiton to the woody end from the return of the shadow so let's get let's get started Okay, so before we properly delve back into the book, one thing I really did want to do in tonight's episode is pay tribute to Christopher Tolkien. As, you know, without his amazing work, there's no chance that I'm sat talking about, you know, the history of Middle-earth. Um... I thought about you know how to sort of best present this, and we have recorded um, a main show, and we, we you know we have mentioned it in the main show as well. But because of the fact that this is about the history of Middle Earth, and, and so so heavily uh, as a result of you know Christopher Tolkien's lifetime of work, I, I, I you know I did want to make mention of it myself. So I'd just like to say. Um, rest in peace Christopher and thank you ever so much okay so second breakfast well to remind people these are hopefully shorter shows that we will be putting out I mean, second breakfast is going to be specifically um, my my little show um, on the history of Middle Earth, and we are starting. We are working through the Return of the Shadow, so that's what that's what this show's about. Um, but you may have heard May's um, short uh, mythology episode one uh, on dwarfs and their gifts that was put out a couple of months ago. Now a wonderful beautiful episode that looks at how Tolkien's legendarium has been influenced by Norse mythology. Um, as May herself remarked 
Norse myths are to Tolkien as second breakfast is to breakfast. So do go check that out. Have a listen if you haven't haven't already done so. And um, give May some love on Facebook and Twitter. And also follow her Instagram because she's um, doing some great videos on there. Okay, so as is common um, so far with this little second breakfast show, what I'm going to do is I'm going to highlight some of the books that I'm going to be using today. Um, you know, I'll be quoting from some of them as well. So a few of them are going to be are going to be a bit repetitive. I'm not going to go into the detail as I did last time. So we have. Volume 6, The Return of the Shadow, otherwise known as Part 1, The History of the Lord of the Rings by Christopher Tolkien. I also have The Letters of J.R.R. Tolkien, edited by Humphrey Carpenter, with the assistance, as uh, we touched on in the obituary, from Christopher Tolkien. Uh, I have J.R.R. Tolkien, a biography by Humphrey Carpenter. I have The Lord of the Rings, A Reader's Companion by Wayne G. Hammond and Christina Skull. And I have The Lord of the Rings. Now, I will go into a little bit of detail with this particular book because, as I touched on in the last episode, I do have quite a number. Um, I think it was 19 at last count. So what I'm planning to do is pick up a different copy every time I record one of these episodes. That way I get to actually, you know, use, read some of the ones that are on the bookshelf, uh, some of the best ones that, you know, perhaps I wouldn't normally pick up um, if I just wanted to flick through and find some information out. I've got some, you know, very loved dog-eared ones um, that I would tend to use, especially, uh, you know, for the podcast, etc. So, Determined to try and well, utilise some of the other ones, but also make it a fun sort of section in, in Second Breakfast. I'm choosing a different version each, uh, each episode that we do. So, this episode, what I have picked up is the 1973 American paperback uh, published by Ballantine Books in New York uh, and published, I believe, by arrangement with Houghton Mifflin uh, Company. So it's a paperback. It would have been uh, purchased lovingly from a second-hand book, bookstore, no doubt. Um, and there is a fantastic cover painting um, called The Hills, Hobbiton Across the Water, which is you know one of the famous paintings actually by the Professor J.R.R. Tolkien himself. So that's the one I'm using uh, for tonight. And um, yeah, good stuff. Okay, so in the last episode, we looked in some detail at how the Professor played around with his opening chapter, A Long Expected Party. Uh, we saw how the inception of the Lord of the Rings in those three days in December of 1937 um, you know, took light. We saw a second and a third version and then eventually a fourth version as well, a typed manuscript that was then sent to Alan and Unwin. We saw the introduction of a certain Bingo Bolger Baggins as well as the main character 
and the gradual absence of Bilbo from uh, the opening chapter. So in that fourth version, it says, Bilbo Baggins adopted Master Bulger, announced that he would make him his heir, changed his name to Bulger Baggins, and still further offended the Sackville Bagginses. Then, shortly before his 111th birthday, Bilbo disappeared finally and was never seen in Hobbiton again. His relatives and neighbours lost the chance of a funeral and they had a good deal to say, but it made no difference. Bilbo's residence, his wealth, his position and the dubious regard of the more influential hobbits were inherited by Bingo Bulger Baggins. We also witnessed many familiar themes starting to grow in the professor's mind, rough in places but present none the same. Gandalf was in a much reduced role uh, and certainly there was no shadow of the past insight as of yet. However, there is a party, there is a speech, there is mention of the ring and a certain hobbit departure from Bag End. Bingo stepped out of the cupboard. It was getting dim. His watch said six. The door was open as he had kept the key in his pocket. He went out, locked the door, leaving the key, and looked at the sky. Stars were coming out. It is going to be a fine night, he said. What a lark. Well, I must not keep them waiting. Now we're off. Goodbye. He trotted down the garden, jumped the fence, and took to the fields, and passed like an invisible rustle in the grasses. And this is where we must now pick up the story. Let's go see who Bingo must not keep waiting. Now Christopher Tolkien comments that the original manuscript drafts for the second chapter of The Lord of the Rings do not constitute a completed narrative, however rough, but rather disconnected parts of the narrative in places in more than one version as the story expanded and changed in the writing. He goes on to give his opinion that the initial draft of this second chapter was probably written or typed out by his father following the fourth version of a long-expected party in December of 1937. Unlike the previous chapter and the four distinct versions of the first phase, it is more difficult to give definitive numbers to these drafts, but I shall try and look at each of the highlighting amendments made to the script and assign my own sections as we do so. As I've said previously, I am not going to be able to give a 100% whole view look at this you know at this book at this particular chapter if people and I hope you do um, become interested especially if you haven't you know you, you haven't got this this knowledge I, I don't I can honestly say I am learning this as I go through so that's part of the fun you know I'm just putting it into a podcast but um, if you are interested go and read it because I'm only giving you little glimpses, uh, selecting the bits that I find interesting, etc, etc. So do go and check it out yourself and you will no doubt get loads out of it. So in saying that, uh, I would suggest that people perhaps also go and read or familiarise themselves with 
um, some of chapter three of the actual published Lord of the Rings, Three is Company. It's 19 pages in total, um, but you don't need to read all of them. Really, go and have a look from the point where the hobbits actually set out, where they leave Hobbiton. Um, you might, as a result, then pick up more from the podcast, from this episode tonight, m- you know, more... Uh, will fully appreciate how the story changes um, because you will have reminded yourself what that final final position is. I'm also going to assume at most instances that you, the listener, already has a certain level of knowledge about Lord of the Rings and for this chapter as well. So go have a little look, go remind yourself if you don't know it off by heart, I'm sure there's people out there who do, um, but I think that will then help uh, enjoy this in this episode more. Um, it's also important to note that it's become increasingly more difficult uh, as I've looked through just these early chapters um, to show a direct comparison between you know these early drafts to actually what is the published final version. It was a little bit easier in, in last episode uh, with that first chapter. It is less so in this, and uh, I've actually done the notes for the next one as well, and you know it's even more convoluted. So it is more difficult to show a direct, a direct link to chapter three, uh, three is company, um, mainly because at this point in the story we don't have what we understand to be chapter two, the shadow of the past. You know that has yet to be formed in the professor's mind. It's not far off, but it's it's not there yet. And that later addition really helps to pad out three years company uh, and give it that uh, that backstory, which is so useful. Um, so it is important to say that you know as we go through this this process, it's going to become more difficult to actually relate it to the original in 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 some bits. Right, therefore, the beginning of Three is Company um, really makes no sense if I was to read its initial few pages. Uh, these opening drafts don't appear for comparison, for example, until five or six pages into the published Three is Company, as the opening pages deal with the fallout from the yet unplanned ring law section. Um, the paragraphs for comparison include a familiar exit from Bag End that we saw Bingo previously undertake in version 3 and 4 of a long-expected party. Um, And, you know, we will explore in more detail what then follows and seeing how it develops. Approximately a third of the way through Three Years Company is the following extract. Frodo shut and locked the round door and gave the key to Sam. Run down with this to your home, Sam, he said. Then cut along the row and meet us as quick as you can at the gate in the lane beyond the meadows. We are not going through the village tonight. Too many ears pricking and eyes prying. Sam ran off at full speed. Well, now we're off at last, said Frodo. They shouldered their packs and took up their sticks and walked round the corner to the west side of Bag End. Goodbye, said Frodo, looking at the dark blank windows. He waved his hand and then turned, and, following Bilbo, if he had known it, hurried after Peregrine down the garden path. They jumped over the low place in the hedge at the bottom, and took to the fields, passing into the darkness like a rustle in the grasses. At the bottom of the hill, on its western side, they came to the gate, opening on a narrow lane, 
There they halted and adjusted the straps of their packs. Presently Sam appeared, trotting quickly and breathing hard. His heavy pack was hoisted high on his shoulders and he had put on his head a tall, shapeless felt bag, which he called a hat. In the gloom, he looked very much like a dwarf. I am sure you have given me all the heaviest stuff, said Frodo. I pity snails and all that carry their homes on their backs. I could take a lot more yet, sir. My pack is quite light, said Sam, stoutly and untruthfully. No, you don't, Sam, said Pippin. It's good for him. He's got nothing except what he ordered us to pack. He's been slack lately, and he'll feel the weight less when he's walked off some of his own. Be kind to a poor old hobbit, laughed Frodo. I shall be as thin as a willow wand, I'm sure, before I get to Buckland. But I was talking nonsense. I suspect you have taken more than your share, Sam, and I shall look into it at our next packing. He picked up his stick again. Well, we all like walking in the dark, he said. So let's put some miles behind us before bed. So that's that's the final version. That's what is in Lord of the Rings. That's where this story's got to get to. All of the uh, the crossing out, the amendments, etc., etc., the thought process. The professor gets to that final point. So let's see how he gets there. The initial working manuscript introduces some new hobbits, namely Odo Took, or Odo Took, Drogo Took, and Frodo Brandybuck. They are waiting for Bingo, who then arrives silently wearing the ring to surprise them, pushing Odo and Drogo off the gate. After this tomfoolery subsides, Tolkien's draft continues. Have you three any idea where we are going to, said Bingo. None whatever, said Frodo, if you mean where we are going to land finally. With such a captain, it would be quite impossible to guess that, but we all know where we are making for first. What we don't know, put in Drogo, is how long it is going to take us on foot. Do you? You have usually taken a pony. That is not much faster, though. It is less tiring. Let me see... I have never done the journey in a hurry before and have usually taken five and a half weeks with plenty of rests. Actually, I have always had some adventure, milder or less so, every time I have taken the road to Rivendell. Very well, said Frodo. Let's put a bit of the way behind us tonight. It is jolly under the stars and cool. Better turn in soon and make an early start, said Otto, who was fond of bed. We shall do more tomorrow if we begin fresh. I back Councillor Frodo, said Bingo. So they started, shouldering packs and gripping long sticks. They went very quietly over fields and along hedgerows and the fringes of small coppices until night fell and in their dark green question mark, cloaks they were quite invisible without any rings. And of course, being hobbits, they could not be heard, not even by hobbits. At last, Hobbiton was far behind, and the lights in the windows of the last farmhouse were twinkling on a hilltop a long way away. Bingo turned and waved a hand in farewell. At the bottom of a slight hill, they struck the main road east, rolling away pale grey into the darkness, between high hedges and dark wind-stirred trees. 
Now they marched along two by two, talking a little, occasionally humming, often tramping in time for a mile or so without saying anything. The stars swung overhead and the night got late. Oddo gave a big yawn and slowed down. I am so sleepy, he said, that I shall fall down on the road. What about a place for the night? Now the first draft stops at this point. Um, and there's a few things to comment on before, before we move on. Um, as you probably gathered initially, it's Four's company, not Three's company. Um, although you will see in the next draft, Drogo is dropped. Um, and also Frodo becomes a Took in the next, the next, um, the next go. We learn that Bingo has been to Rivendell many times, probably visiting his uncle Bilbo. Uh, we suspect. Um, it's unclear as to why the journey now needs to be made quickly, but suspect the professor is maybe starting to create some dangers in his mind, although we don't have actual suggestions as yet uh, regarding evidence to this. Um, and, and finally, you know, took the main road east. There's no mention yet of Buckland at all. And, of, you know, of course... You know, there is a very familiar name there, Frodo, um, but it's not yet the Frodo. It's um, a name that obviously sticks around and gets moved to replace eventually Bingo. Um, but uh, for now, Frodo is a changeable character. Brandy Buck in this one, soon to be a Turk, will eventually um, be obviously adopted and be a Baggins. So, the second draft, uh, the professor includes a revised opening. He drops, Fro uh, drops Drogo, sorry, uh, as stated. Four then becomes three, uh, a little bit more familiar. He omits the reference to Rivendell, uh, replacing it with a plan to go pick up Marmaduke, uh, who would later become Merry and uh, expands on the description of the walk from Hobbiton, now including the following. After a rest on a bank under some thinly clad birches, they went on again, until they struck a narrow road. It went rolling away, pale grey in the dark, up and down, but all the time gently climbing southward. It was the road to Buckland climbing away from the main east road in the water valley, and winding away past the skirts of the green hills towards the south-east corner of the Shire. The wood end, as the hobbits called it, they marched along it until it plunged between high hedges and dark trees, rustling their dry leaves gently in the night airs. So the big addition to the second draft is perhaps the most surprising, but also sets the groundwork for just um, one of my all-time favourite scenes. Possibly highlights the moment where the story moves from the child-friendly Hobbit to the far darker, more adult Lord of the Rings. Um, the second draft jumps to the following day, and in mid-sentence, the professor wrote... On the flat, among tall trees growing in scattered fashion in the grasslands, 
when Frodo said, I can hear a horse coming along the road behind. They looked back, but the windings of the road hid the traveller. I think we had better get out of sight, said Bingo, or you fellows at any rate. Of course, it doesn't matter very much, but I would rather not be met by anyone we know. They ran quickly to the left, down into a little hollow beside the road, and lay flat. Bingo slipped on his ring and sat down a few yards from the track. The sound of hooves drew nearer. Round a turn came a white horse, and on it sat a bundle, or that is what it looked like, a small man wrapped entirely in a great cloak and hood, so that only his eyes peered out and his boots in the stirrups below. The horse stopped when it came level with Bingo. The figure uncovered its nose and sniffed, and then sat silent, as if listening. Suddenly, a laugh came from inside the hood. Bingo, my boy, said Gandalf, throwing aside his wrappings. You and your lads are somewhere about. Come along now and show up. I want a word with you. He turned his horse and rode straight to the hollow, where Oddo and Frodo lay. Hello, hello, he said. Tired already? Aren't you going any further today? At that moment, Bingo reappeared again. Well, I'm blessed, said he. What are you doing along this way, Gandalf? I thought you had gone back with the elves and dwarves. And how did you know where we were? Easy, said Gandalf. No magic. I saw you from the top of the hill and knew how far ahead you were. As soon as I turned the corner and saw the straight piece in front was empty, I knew you had turned aside somewhere about here. And you have made a track in the long grass that I can see, at any rate when I am looking for it. Wow. So, as I said, I, I'm reading this, learning this, for the first time. I did not know that. Um, the Black Rider that we we know comes along spawns from Gandalf. Um, you know, the the most unlikely of, uh, of changes. The most terrifying of scenes when you read the final published version begins as this happy surprise. So, you know, the initial fear is more curiosity at this stage. We've no reason to be scared from what we have read so far. The journey is a safe one, unlike the backstory prior to Three is Company and the hunt for the hobbits that, you know, we are more familiar with. There's a white horse compared to a black horse, and that immediately, you know, calms, soothes the reader. You know, we're not expecting it to be dangerous because of the colour. There's a great cloak rather than a black rider. But the thing that made me laugh, the thing that, that did make me smile, um, Gandalf sniffed first. This this idea that the black rider um, eerily sniffs, smells to try and find the hobbits, well, the the point of the story, the creation of that sniff is Gandalf. Um, and that, that did make me smile. Now, at this point of the second draft, the professor stops. And Christopher is convinced this is because his father knew at this stage it wasn't right. The story was not 
was not working in the way it should do. He abandoned the rider in grey almost immediately. And therefore this is that unpremeditated turn, the change in the story. Now draft three became a very complex and battered document, which in true J.R.R. Tolkien fashion was revised many times over. Some pages or sections were retyped, although the rejected pages were retained. Other changes were written and were mostly minor alterations. Christopher Tolkien provides a version that encompasses all of these changes. Um, I'm going to read in a minute some of my favourite sections, which in places are quite long, but I couldn't or didn't want to you know, not include parts of, of this story. I could, to be fair, very easily have just read all 17 pages, but um, we'd be here all night. So the first reading describes the trek out of Hobbiton. And so they started, shouldering their packs and swinging their stout sticks. They went very quietly over fields and along hedgerows and the borders of coppices until night fell. In their dark grey cloaks they were invisible without the help of any magic rings. And since they were all hobbits, they made no noise that even hobbits could hear, or, indeed, even wild creatures in the woods and fields. After some time they crossed the water west of Hobbiton, where it was no more than a winding ribbon of black lined with leaning alders. They were now in Tookland, and they began to climb into the green hill country south of Hobbiton. They could see the village twinkling away down in the gentle valley of the water. Soon it disappeared in the folds of the darkened land and was followed by bywater besides its great grey pool. When the light of the last farmhouse was far behind, peeping out of the trees, Bingo turned and waved a hand in farewell. Now we're really off, he said. I wonder if we shall ever look down into that valley again. After they had walked for about two hours, they rested. The night was clear, cool and starry, but smoky wisps of mist were creeping up the hills from the streams and deep meadows. Thin-clad birches swaying in a cold breeze above their heads made a black net against the pale sky. They ate a very frugal supper for hobbits and then went on again. Oddo was reluctant, but the rest of the council pointed out that this bare hillside was no place for passing the night. Soon they struck a narrow road. It went rolling up and down until it faded grey into the gathering dark. It was the road to Buckland, climbing away from the main east road in the water valley and winding over the skirts of the green hills towards the south-eastern corner of the Shire, the woody end, as the hobbits called it. Not many of them lived in that part. Along this road they marched, Soon it plunged into a deeply cloven track between tall trees that rustled their dry leaves in the night. It was very dark. At first they talked or hummed a tune softly together. Then they marched on in silence, and Oddo began to lag behind. At last he stopped and gave a big yawn. I am so sleepy, he said, that soon I shall fall down on the road. What about a place for the night, or are you fellows going to sleep on your legs? When does Marmaduke expect us? asked Frodo. Tomorrow night? 
No, said Bingo, we should not get there by tomorrow night, even with a forced march, unless we went on many more miles now. And I must say, I don't feel like it. It is getting on for midnight already. But it is all right. I told Marmaduke to expect us the night after tomorrow, so there is no hurry. The wind's in the west, said Otto. If we go down the other side of this hill, we are climbing. We ought to find a spot fairly dry and sheltered. At the top of the hill, over which the road ran, they came upon a patch of firwood, dry and resin-scented. Leaving the road, they went into the deep darkness of the wood and gathered dead sticks and cones to make a fire. Soon they had a merry crackle of flame at the foot of a great fir and sat round it for a while until they began to nod with sleep. Then, each in an angle of the great tree's roots, they curled up in their cloaks and blankets and were soon fast asleep. There was no danger, for they were still in the shire. A few creatures came and looked at them when the fire had died away. A fox, passing through the wood on business of his own, stopped several minutes and sniffed. Hobbits, he thought. Well, what next? I have heard a good many tales of queer goings on in the Shire, but I have never heard of a hobbit sleeping out of doors under a tree. Three of them. There's something mighty queer behind this. He was quite right, but he never found out any more about it. I love that. I think the description is just beautiful. Um, you you really get this this imagery of you know hobbits walking through the countryside, through the woodland, etc. Um, I've always loved the the final version. I love this this chapter. Um, I I would say this is probably my favourite chapter. Um, in the entire book, not just the the fantastic imagery, um, being outside in the open, etc., but as we you know later we'll we'll touch on the the way it suddenly turns dark, um, makes it a very very good chapter in my in my eyes. Um, we have we have Marmaduke uh, or Merry as as he will become uh, expecting us, which is which is good to hear, and. We have Mr. Fox, uh, and I found it really fascinating that Mr. Fox is there in the early drafts. He's there in, in you know, right at the start. And this, to me, always felt, feels more hobbitish, you know, you know more uh, like The Hobbit than The Lord of the Rings. And it's perhaps an indication of that lighter feel before we we see the story turn um, turn darker, whether that was a conscious thing by the professor to leave in as a you know as a clear um, ending of the the more childhood story and the start of the more adult dark version, I don't know. Right, let's see how those black riders make their first appearance. I can hear a horse or a pony coming along the road behind, said Frodo. They looked back, but the turn of the road prevented them from seeing far. I think we had better get out of sight, said Bingo, or you two at any rate. Of course, it does not matter much, but I have a feeling that I would rather not be seen by anyone just now. 
Otto and Frodo ran quickly to the left, down into a little hollow, not far from the road, and lay flat. Bingo slipped on his ring and stepped behind a tree. The sound of hoofs drew nearer. Round the turn came a black horse. No hobbit pony, but a full-sized horse. And on it sat a bundle. Or that is what it looked like. A broad, squat man, completely wrapped in a great black cloak and hood, so that only his boots in the stirrups showed below. His face was shadowed and invisible. When it came on a level with Bingo, the horse stopped. The riding figure sat quite still as if listening. From inside the hood came a noise, as of someone sniffing to catch an elusive scent. The head turned from side to side of the road. At last, the horse moved on again, walking slowly at first, and then taken to a gentle trot. Bingo slipped to the edge of the road and watched the rider until he dwindled in the distance. He could not be quite sure, but it seemed to him that suddenly, before they passed out of sight, the horse and rider turned aside and rode into the trees. Well, I call that very queer and even a little disturbing, said Bingo to himself as he walked back to his companions. They had remained flat in the grass and had seen nothing, so Bingo described to them the rider and his strange behaviour. I can't say why, but I felt perfectly certain he was looking or smelling for me. And I also felt very clearly that I did not want him to discover me. I've never seen or felt anything quite like it in the Shire before. But what has one of the big people got to do with us, said Oddo, and what is he doing in this part of the world at all? Except for those men from Dale the other day, I haven't seen one of that kind in our shire for years. I have, though, said Frodo, who had listened intently to Bingo's description of the Black Rider. It reminds me of something I had almost forgotten. I was walking away up in the North Moor, you know, right up on the northern borders of the shire, um, early last spring, when a similar rider met me. He was riding south and he stopped and spoke, although he did not seem able to speak our language very well. He asked me if I knew where a place called Hobbiton was and if there were any folk called Baggins there. I thought it very queer at the time and I had a queer, uncomfortable feeling too. I could not see any face under his hood. I never heard whether he turned up in Hobbiton or not. If I did not tell you, I meant to. You didn't tell me, and I wish you had, said Bingo. I should have asked Gandalf about it, and probably we should have taken more care on the road. Then you know or, or guess something about the rider, said Frodo. What is he? I don't know, and I don't want to guess, said Bingo. But somehow I don't believe either of these riders, if there are two, was really one of the big people. Not one of the kind like Dale men, I mean. Oh, I wish Gandalf was here, but now it will be a long time before we find him. In a way, I suppose I ought to be pleased, but I am not quite prepared for adventures yet, and I was not expecting any in our own shire. For me, this is where the story goes up a notch. Um, Bingo wears the ring, 
um, in this first encounter on the road. He actually put it on when it was Gandalf um, and sat by the side of the road. In this one, he puts it on and he hides behind a tree. Um, but the language, you know, straight away, we know the professor has just changed the direction of this story. Um, the horse stops level with Bingo. Um, so, you know, there's a clear idea that, you know, this, this new this new character, this rider, can sense the ring, perhaps. There is a, a horribly amazing image, and um, this never fails to you know, chill me. The, the image of the rider um, trotting off into the distance, and well, at this point, bingo believing that he sees him disappearing off the road ahead into the trees and that that's there in the, you know in the final one you know that is there in the, in the final um the final uh, extract it's here right at the start it is part of that very first introduction and you know this image totally ramps the terror up of the chapter uh, tenfold for me every time I read The Lord of the Rings. I love and I hate this part of the paragraph um, in equal measure. Uh, I actually think that, you know, the film did a, a very good, if a little short, um, uh, attempt at, you know, putting across that fear. I mean, I, I love... I love the Lord of the Rings films. I love the Fellowship of the Ring, especially. Um, there's a part of me, and I think I might have said this on a, on a previous, you know, very early episode. The <laughs> the part of that film could have gone on for half an hour for me. The the hunting of the hobbits by the Black Riders is is just brilliant, horrific. I would have loved for that to have been expanded more in the film. Um, I found it ironic that <laughs> Frodo Turk had previously met a black rider uh, rather than what would eventually become, obviously, Sam recalling the forgotten message from the old gaffer in The Final Three is Company. Uh, Christopher remarks that the original hunt for the ring at first had started a long time before, um, Unless, of course, the Black Rider's purpose had not yet fully um, formed. Now, this draft was amended slightly so that Bingo's response was a little more revealing. That makes it even queerer, said Bingo. I am glad I had the fancy not to be seen on the road, but somehow I don't believe either of these riders was one of the big people, not of the kind like the Dale men. I mean, I wonder what they were. I rather wish Gandalf was here, but of course he went away immediately after the fireworks with the elves and the dwarves, and it will be ages before we see him now. So we do learn a little bit more about where Tolkien's positioning of Gandalf, his movements, uh, were in his, his mind. Still some way away from their final positions though. Now the draft continues uh, with more glimpses of the mysterious Black Rider. The walking song, Upon the Half, The Fire is Red, um, which is amended once to its finished role. 
And we also see the elves of, of the woody end. The sound of hooves ceased. As Bingo watched, he saw something dark pass across the lighter space between two trees and then halt. It looked like the black shade of a horse led by a smaller black shadow. The black shadow stood close to the point where they had left the road and it swayed from side to side. Bingo thought he heard the sound of sniffing. The shadow bent to the ground and then began to crawl towards him. At that moment, there came a sound like mingled song and laughter. Voices clear and fair rose and fell in the starlit air. The black shadow straightened and retreated. It climbed onto the shadowy horse and seemed to vanish across the road into the darkness on the other side. Bingo breathed again. Elves, said Frodo in an excited whisper behind him. Elves. So the, the elves get to have their moment of eucatastrophe. They turn up just at the right time to assist the hobbits. But actually there's evidence that, that the professor may not have had the elves in mind for this very crucial uh, intervention. Um, he, he writes of a creak of wheels disturbing the crawling black rider. And that, you know, it does suggest perhaps something other than elves. But um, nonetheless, there is, there is little other evidence uh, apart from that. Now, Bingo's conversation with Gildor does have some very uh, interesting insights. Why did you choose this moment to set out? asked Gildor. Well, really, it chose itself, answered Bingo. I had come to the end of my treasure. It had always held me back from the journey which half of my heart wished for, ever since Bilbo went away, but now it was gone. So I said to my stay-at-home half, There is nothing to keep you here. The journey might bring you some more treasure, as it did for old Bilbo, and anyway, on the road, you will be able to live more easily without any. Of course, if you like to stay in Hobbiton and earn your living as a gardener or a carpenter, you can. The stay-at-home half surrendered. It did not want to make other people's chairs or grow other people's potatoes. It was soft and fat. I think the journey will do it good. But of course, the other half is not really looking for treasure, but for adventure later rather than sooner. At the moment, it also is soft and fat and finding walking over the Shire quite enough. I want to get to Rivendell if I can, though I hear the road has not grown easier of late years. Can you tell me anything to guide me or help me? I do not think you will find the road too hard, but if you are thinking of what you call the Black Rider, that is another matter. Have you told me all your reasons for leaving secretly? Did Gandalf tell you nothing? Not even a hint, at least none that I understood. I seldom saw him after Bilbo went away. Twice a year at most. I saw him last spring when he turned up unexpectedly one night and I told him then of the plan I was beginning to make for the journey. He seemed pleased and told me not to put it off later than the autumn. He came again to help me with the party, but we were too busy then to talk much, and he went off with the dwarfs and the Rivendell elves as soon as the fireworks were over. He did hint that I might meet him again in Rivendell. 
and suggested that I should make for that place first. Not later than the autumn, said Gildor. I wonder. He, he may all the same not have known that they were in the Shire, yet he knows more about them than we do. If, if he did not tell you any more, I do not feel inclined to do so, for fear of frightening you from the journey, because I think it is clear that your journey started none too soon. By what seems strange good luck, you went just in time. You ought to go on and not turn back, though you have met adventure and danger much sooner than you expected. You ought to go quickly, but you must be careful and look not only ahead, but also behind, and even perhaps to both sides as well. I wish you would say things plainer, said Bingo, but I am glad to be told that I ought to go on, for that is what I want to do. Only I now rather wonder if I ought to take Oddo and Frodo. The original plan was just a journey, a sort of prolonged and perhaps permanent holiday from Hobbiton, and I am sure they did not expect any more adventures for a long time than getting wet and hungry. We had no idea we should be pursued. Oh, come, they must have known that if you intend to go wandering out of the Shire into the wild world, you must be prepared for anything. I cannot see that it makes so much difference if something has turned up rather soon. Are they not willing to go on? Yes, they say so. Then let them go on. They are lucky to be your companions, and you are lucky to have them. They are a great protection to you. What do you mean? I think the riders do not know that they are with you, and their presence has confused the scent and puzzled them. Dear me, it is all very mysterious. It is like solving riddles, but I have always heard that talking to elves is like that. It is, laughed Gildor, and elves seldom give advice. But when they do, it is good, and I have advised you to go to Rivendell with speed and care. Nothing else that I could tell you would make that advice any better. We have our own business, and our own sorrows, and those have little to do with the ways of hobbits or of other creatures. But paths cross those ways seldom, and mostly by accident. In our meeting there is perhaps something more than accident, yet I do not feel sure that I ought to interfere. But I will add a little bit more advice. If a rider finds you or speaks to you, do not answer, and do not name yourself. Also, do not again use the ring to escape from his search. I do not know, but I guess that the use of the ring helps them more than you. More and more mysterious, said Bingo. I can't imagine what information would be more frightening than your hints, but I suppose you know best. I do indeed, said Gilda, and I will say no more. Look, we have the original reasons for why Bingo, stroke Frodo, is leaving the Shire. Um, you know, very much run out of money, wanting an adventure, battling with his, you know, more predictable stay-at-home half, etc., um, etc. Et we have the mystery of the Black Riders, and also we have the, you know, the, the, the Gandalf position. We have his role in not telling Bingo about them yet. In the final version, we, the reader, already know what the Black Rider is. We know that. At this point in the story, Tolkien is springing this on, on us, springing it on himself, um, you, you might argue. 
so we don't have the we don't have the the role that Gandalf so wonderfully plays in providing the history and providing the backstory. We don't have that yet. Now, we do have Gandalf arriving unexpectedly one one night, um, wrong timeline, but you know the beginnings of of chapter two, the shadow of the past, um, you know that we've just touched on. So we do have aspects of the story that that will. You know, familiarize um, as we as we we move forward. We have that moment of eu catastrophe. We have we have those elves turning up at that point. Now, you know, Tolkien, avid readers, especially ones who have read sort of the Silmarillion, etc., etc. You will be aware of eu catastrophe. It's something that I very much understood better since since doing the Green Door podcast, you know, since chatting it through with, with James and May, since listening to, you know, the excellent um, boys over at the Prancing Pony, etc., etc. And now you can't help but see your catastrophe in, in, in so many parts of the story. Um, so we have that. We have the elves turning up and saving the day, so to speak, at a point when all appeared to be going very wrong with a black rider crawling towards these hobbits. Uh, and we have the idea of the hunt for the hobbits becoming actually the hunt for the ring. Um, it's evolving gradually, and although the scenes written are familiar, even now the meaning and significance behind them change as the story develops in the professor's mind. Now, Christopher... He actually comments that most remarkable is the fact that when the story of the beginning of the journey, the coming of the Black Riders and the meeting with Gildor and his company was written and written so that its content would not in essentials be changed afterwards. Bingo has no faintest inkling of what the Riders want with him. Gandalf has told him nothing. He has no reason to associate the riders with his ring, and no reason to regard it as more than a highly convenient magical device. He slips it on each time a rider passes, naturally. Of course, the fact that Bingo is wholly ignorant of the nature of the pursuing menace, utterly baffled by the black horseman, does not imply that my father was also. There are several suggestions that new ideas had arisen in the background, not explicitly conveyed in the narrative, but deliberately reduced to dark hints of danger in the words of Gildor. That this was so will be seen more clearly at the beginning of the next chapter. It may be that it was the unpremeditated conversion of the cloaked and muffled horseman who overtook them on the road from Gandalf to a black rider, combining with the idea already present that Bilbo's ring was of dark origin and strange properties that was the impulse of the new conceptions. From the early rewriting of the conversation between Gildor and Bingo, it emerges that Gandalf had warned Bingo not to delay his departure beyond the autumn, although without apparently giving him any reason for the warning. And in both forms of the text, Gildor evidently knows something about the riders, says that 
by what seems strange good luck you went just in time, and associates them with the ring, warning Bingo against using it again to escape, and suggesting that the use of it helps them more than you. The ring had not been mentioned in their conversation, but we can suppose that Bingo had previously told Gildor that he had used it when the riders came by. The idea of the riders and the ring was no doubt evolving as my father wrote. I think it very possible that when he first described the halts of the black horsemen beside the hiding hobbits, he imagined them as drawn by scent alone and it is not clear in any case in what way the use of the ring would help them more than you. As I have said, it is deeply characteristic that these scenes emerged at once in the clear and memorable form that was never changed, but that their bearing and significance would afterwards be enormously enlarged. The invent, one might say, was fixed but its meaning capable of indefinite extension, and this is seen over and over again as a prime mark of my father's writing. In Fellowship of the Ring, from the intervening chapter, The Shadow of the Past, we have some notion of what that other feeling was, which struggled with Frodo's desire to hide, of why Gandalf had so urgently forbidden him to use the ring, and of why he was driven irresistibly to put it on, and when we have read further, we know what would have happened if he had. The scenes here are empty by comparison, yet they are the same scenes. Even such slight remarks as Bingo's, I don't know and I don't want to guess. In the context, a mere expression of doubt and discomfort. If, with a suggestion, that Gandalf must have said something, or rather that my father was beginning to think that Gandalf must have said something, survived to take on a much more menacing significance in Fellowship of the Ring, where we have a very good idea of what Frodo chose not to guess about. Okay, so there we go. That is the end of of my little look at episode three. Um, I'm sure you'll, you'll agree it's full of very interesting, exciting developments. Um, you know, Gandalf becoming the Black Rider, um, without doubt, a wow moment for me. So thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, I'm going to say thank you to James and to May, my co-hosts of um, the the main show. And as I touched on earlier, you know, we have um, we have actually recorded. Uh, one of the main shows so that's in post editing production I believe Uh, may or may not come out before this one does Um, but uh, we will soon you know soon be releasing releasing that one Um, I'd like to mention very quickly you know our Facebook group Um, do come find us uh, on Facebook uh, Green Door Podcast and uh, the Twitter presence as well. You know, come and chat uh, via Twitter if that's more your thing. So, next episode, we will look at the first phase of Gollum and the Ring. So, I will look forward to seeing you then. But for now, I'll say bye. This is Second Breakfast 